Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be back with historian Gil Valentine. Thanks so much for continuing to talk to us about your book, Ostriches and Canaries. Thanks, Alexander, for the invitation to join you again in some discussion. I've enjoyed it. Me as well. So today we're moving on from Robert Pearson to, we could say, the man in the middle, Richard Hamill, president of Andrews University during much of the time covered in your book. Tell me who Richard Hamill was. Richard Hamill was a a product of the Northwest, a product of the financial recession of the 1930s, product of a home where mother was an Adventist and father wasn't. Uh, He became an Adventist later in his teens, in fact, just when he was turning 20. Um, A very bright person, very intellectual, and a person of of vision. He, He really did have a vision for building the education system of the church and was, was committed to that. So many, many things. Um, perhaps I, I could relate that his, his uh, background um, from Eastern Oregon, he came off a farm and then moved to Western Washington again on a farm, kind of a hard scrabble farm, wasn't very wealthy. He uh, endured quite a bit of hardship in his teens. Um, and his, his parents originally had been uh, Church of the Brethren people. His mother became an Adventist when he was about 14 years of age. And uh, she was the only one, maybe his sisters became an Adventist, but he didn't become an Adventist at that time. Um, so kind of that, that background shapes a person, shapes their values. He lived in a, on a farm where he says that out of the windows of his house, <laughs> he could see Mount Rainier and Mount St. Helens. And he loved the out of doors. Um, and yet, for most of his life, he was confined to an academic office, <laughs> administration <laughs> office in the, in the cities. Um, so he, he kind of treasured holidays going out into the outdoors and was a bit of a loner in that. He liked trekking by himself and wandering the woods by himself. Um, hmm. So that, that shaped him. That's that's interesting background you mentioned values can you talk about some of the things that he valued he comparatively uh well compared to many adventists he was quite serious about his academic studies um in that era and in many ways parallels the track of the uh, canaries in the book and his educational interests uh what what did he value he valued um economic thriftiness for one thing <laughs> that that was his background and and when he was going through his study program i mean he took his doc- doctoral degree at the university of chicago in old testament studies but had to crowd it into two years <laughs> coursework and dissertation 
because of the impositions of the economic situation. He was uh, academic dean at the time um, at um, Southern, Missionary, Southern Missionary College and money was scarce. So he had to do on, on, on a very tight uh, financial plan. Um, so he, that, that shaped him significantly and in his later administration. It also helped him to be committed to the church, I think. He was very committed to the church as an institution and to its, its uh, academic programs. Um, he was committed to learning. I mean, he, he was uh, the kind of person who even in a very tight academic program at University of Chicago would take a number of uh, courses outside of his scheduled program of study just to learn. I mean, he took a number, audited a number of courses in anthropology. So he had broad interests and was committed to the church being academically credible. Um, so that, that was a very important strand of, of who Hamill was. Um, yeah, he, um, when he served in the General Conference from 19, 55 through 1963, his role was to foster graduate study and graduate interests. He chaired the, the meetings every four years of the college teachers, religion one year, science the next, and uh, understood the needs of higher education. And uh, of course, it was in under his um, leadership even as a, an assistant in the General Conference Education Department, working with Cosentine, um, that he fostered the development of graduate programs for science students, in, for science teachers in the area of geology and um, ancient earth history. It was really his coordination from the General Conference that led to the establishment of the Geoscience Research Institute. So, so he had that kind of commitment, genuinely committed to improving the academic credibility of teachers and the church's education system. And then Robert Pearson comes along. And for much <laughs> of your uh, book, Richard <laughs> Hamill seems like a man in the middle. He's caught between the General Conference president and his academic community, especially uh, the seminary uh, uh, faculty. Talk about, uh, if you will, that um, that position that he was in and what sort of pressures he was under. Yeah, those kind of pressures put put Hamill in a very difficult situation quite often. He, he faced enormous pressures when he was uh, president of Andrews University. I mean, his coming into the office as president <laughs> was in a very turbulent time. Um, when the, the seminary and the graduate school were merging with Emmanuel Missionary College and they ran into troubles over how, how this whole new entity should be structured, um, making the transition from general conference, well, from um, Lake Union conference ownership to general conference ownership was a very difficult time and they didn't really understand how to structure it. And so that was worked out by experiment over time. And uh, so when he came into the office, he already right at the outset had difficulties with the accreditation process and they almost lost their accreditation, placed under probation for a short while <laughs> with the outgoing president of Emmanuel Missionary College um, 
being upset with the way the transition was handled. So one of one of um, Hamill's first tasks was to secure a stable accreditation. And he had visions for introducing doctoral programs. I mean, a, a university couldn't be a university without offering doctoral programs. So he was committed to that um, and uh, put a lot of energy into recruiting the kind of faculty that would make the offering of doctoral programs at the seminary and at the university possible in the education field and, and in the theological religion field. Um, but to do that under tight budgets, put him under pressure. Sure. <laughs> um, and to do that with an administration of the university, the board administration, being a very conservative board, also put him under enormous pressure. So he had to negotiate um, very difficult minefields, in a sense, keeping the accreditation bodies happy, recruiting the kind of faculty that would meet accreditation standards, and yet coping with the pressure, a very conservative pressure, a, a church administration that wanted a very conservative campus, um, put him under significant pressure made for long days, difficult personal situations, both with faculty and with the students. I mean, this was a time also when there was huge social change going on in America. Uh, the time when Pearson was president and the time when Hamill was president of the university was a time when students were resisting authority. They didn't want to be under a tight administration. <laughs> they wanted more of a voice in university affairs. Um, and and Hamill had to cope with that and, and to be the diplomat and yet also to represent um, the university and its administration. So it, it was a very difficult time for, for Hamill during these periods. And of course, through all of this, there was still the financial pressure. He had to do things with a tight budget. Um, so difficult time to be a president of a university. <laughs> well, um, in your book, in a page uh, 201, you quote from a letter um, that has to do with Hilgert and uh, Kubo, but it's written by uh, Dick Ritland. And I'll just read uh, what you wrote here. Mm -hmm. Ritland realized that Hamill's hands might be forced with, quote, no alternative. And he sympathized with the well-nigh impossible administrative problem, end of quote. I thought that's interesting that sort of he's a man in the middle, perhaps caught in a box can canyon. Yeah. And, um, and what were some of the ways, perhaps if you could talk about maybe um, a way that he was able to um, uh, craft a way forward? And then maybe if you would talk about a mistake that you, looking back, that you think that he made. Yeah. Hemmel had had experience previously in his ministry of coping with environments that were hostile. Uh, he spent four years in the Philippines in an internment or under, under Japanese occupation. Um, and the story of his escape from the Japanese internment camp is, is really quite dramatic. Um, he, the paratroopers came in and, and uh, landed in the camp and he was um, taken out by tank. He had to jump on a tank and, and flee from the camp. So he, he had learned to cope with the administration that was not very friendly. <laughs> um, and I guess 
that helped him to understand the ethics of making compromises, but helped him to know how to survive um, when, when survival was important um, and still maintain one's personal integrity. And that, that's always a difficult challenge. He faced that kind of challenge during his administration at Andrews, where the administration was, was not hostile against him personally, but well, hostile in the sense that they were expecting a conservative environment where it wasn't possible to actually deliver one fully. Um, so the pressures of accreditation meant that at the seminary, they had to offer courses that really introduced students to studies beyond desire of ages. <laughs> they had to really, in fact, it was an intentional modification of the curriculum in the seminary to expose students to the synoptic problem and to the problems of the New Testament. They felt they had a duty to do that. And so, of course, teachers had to, to introduce students to that. And that troubled Hamill um, and troubled those in his immediate circle. Um, Hamill himself was familiar with the issues because of his study at Chicago. He'd been a long-term friend of Earl Hilgert, the New Testament professor. Um, they'd been college mates at Walla Walla. In fact, I think Hilgert had been the best man at, <laughs> at Hamill's wedding. And uh, Hamill at uh, Walla Walla had studied under Frederick Schilling, who the year after Hamill's graduation, Schilling had been squeezed out of Walla Walla for his own suspected heresy. Um, so Hamill was familiar with the issues and, and Il, Earl Hilgert is quoted as saying he knew where the skeletons were in the cupboard, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so he, he was familiar with the issues, understood what his faculty had to do. And yet when the pressures came on from the board and from, from uh, um, Pearson in particular, he felt that he had to make some compromises and balance the set of interests for the welfare of the institution and for the survivability of his budgets and the accreditation process. So he, he pushed back against Pearson. He defended Jim Cox. He, he defended Gottfried Oosterweil. He found a place outside of teaching for Sakai Kubo when critics from the General Conference were out for the scalps, that's the language being used, they were out to get the scalp of Hilgert and the scalp of, of Sakai Kubo. So um, Hamill was able to find a place of safety for them. But when the pressure became even more intense, and that was produced by criticism from the General Conference, channeling, I think, criticism from conservative ministers in the field and conservative church members. So it was all a mix in, in this. Um, then uh, Hamill had felt that he had to, uh, to let one or two go. I, I think he would have really preferred to have kept Ted Vick on, on staff, but the pressure was too great and uh, Ted Vick's position was, was uh, terminated. He, he just wasn't renewed and they found a, a careful way to do that within the HR policy. Um, but it was not something that would have been his first choice. Mm. Um, he would also have liked to have kept on Earl Hilgert. But 
Earl Hildert felt that he was at a stage in his career where if he stayed on at Andrews, his future wouldn't have been secure. And these were the days when sustentation was a, a, a manipulative tool that the church could keep over your head. If, if you got out of favor with the church and, and were terminated, then you lost all retirement benefits. That changed later. Sure. And, and made for a more stable environment and made easier administration. But I, I think Hamill felt very badly about having to, to let go, uh, let Hilgert go, um, and regretted that. As he regretted the loss of uh, Schilling, his, his teacher at, uh, at Walla Walla. Um, well, let me play devil's advocate here, if you don't mind. Um, you know, in reading your book and talking about your book with folks, I've heard others describe him, um, students there at Andrews at the time, calling him mousy in their interactions with him and feeling like he wouldn't really stand up for things. Um, and, you know, others have talked about the kind of, you know, one person's compromiser as another person's chameleon. Mm-hmm. And was was there a sense that people could trust Hamill to stand up for them, or was where were his loyalties? They were divided loyalties, <laughs> I think, um, because he did have a loyalty to the church and to his board. He he felt a responsibility to the board, and he wanted to stay as president of the university in order to secure. The offering of doctoral programs and to build its reputation. He'd invested a lot of his life actually in getting the university started. His, his years in the General Conference Education Department, many of those had been devoted to readying the church broadly for the establishment of universities, both Loma Linda and, Las, and uh, Andrews. I mean, he'd worked closely with Cosentine in creating a culture that would accept the establishment of universities. Um, so he, he was committed to that and, and valued the university. And he recognized that if he didn't protect his flanks, in a sense, he would lose his job. In fact, when he did leave the university in 1976, it was because the board chair was taking advice from the business department and not from the president. And and Hamill felt that he was being white-handed and undermined. And, and he was aware of that dimension earlier. So part of the trade-off, I guess, of, of sharing some of the intellectual convictions of his faculty, and yet having to let them go because he couldn't manage the the pressure and maintain his position of the university president, not just for his own personal benefit as president, but because he really did want the university to thrive and survive. Uh, a very difficult situation. And I, I'm sure that some people could with uh, legitimacy say that he'd been mousy in, in his defense of them. Um, so how to read the balance <laughs> there? I, I wouldn't have liked to have been in his shoes, actually, um, to to try and balance the, the intellectual integrity, the personal integrity, knowing that Jim Cox and uh, 
Gottfried Oosterweil understood the problems of Genesis and he understood them <laughs> and yet wanting them to be publicly in support of the traditional positions and he was able to hear them say that so that he could report that to Pearson knowing that the language he was having to use was very careful and 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 very very carefully chosen um so you know it, it's a difficult situation to be in and i think the the challenge that he faced was was even more difficult when he moved to the general conference and willis hackett wanted him to be on board and in fact he had to as a company man go around the colleges and try and sell these confessional statements and and he was uncomfortable in doing that but he had to speak for the administration in doing that i i don't know how he coped with that and he, he himself recognized that that was the role of the company man and uh, he had to live with that um, mm. he faced the same dilemma in 1980 i think uh, during the um Glacy view problem where he understood the issues and yet felt the church couldn't quite make the journey to where Ford wanted it to be in a short time. <laughs> so he adopted a slow approach and some thought that he compromised his integrity um, and, and perhaps he did in order to survive in his role to serve the church. Mm. Well, in on uh, you, you let Jude uh, have the last word in your book. You get the penultimate word, but Richard Hamill is the um, the th well, yeah, he's the third last third to the last person that you give um, quotes to in your book. And on page four thirty two, you quote Richard Hamill noted several years after his retirement. Quote, Adventists are encountering some very persistent and painful facts which require calm, thorough, and honest investigation. You write, he cited the economist Lester Turo, who had observed that facts are difficult to deal with when they conflict with theory. And before changing theories, most human beings will spend long periods of time pretending the facts do not exist, hoping that the facts will magically go away or denying that facts are important. That's significant coming mm -hmm. from Hamill, or at least a quote quoted by Hamill. Why did you decide to end your book uh, with Hamill there? I think Hamill illustrates, Hamill as a person, um, illustrates very well the dilemma of the church as a body, as a corporate entity, um, that he himself came to terms with the facts slowly. He, he justifies his, his slow journey by saying that during his, his time in administration, he didn't have the time to put into thorough research and to writing articles. And I think that's true. I mean, he, he felt compressed, to, he felt the pressure to compress his doctoral study into those two years. Um, and he regretted that actually, that, that he was under those constraints. Later when he was administrative leader of uh, the university, he felt he didn't have time to really get into researching ancient church history, but he understood the issues. 
he talked to people, he talked to his science faculty, and, and he understood where the facts were, but felt that he didn't understand it thoroughly enough to, to go out public and, and make a, a stand on a mountaintop on the issue. Um, only after he retired <laughs> did he really feel that he had the time to study both the sanctuary issue and ancient earth history issues, um, which, which is a tragedy, really, um, because he, he was more outspoken, still diplomatic, still concerned for the welfare of the church. Um, but the chapter in his pilgrimage book that didn't get published <laughs> um, because he felt it was still too sensitive, looked at the issues of Glacier View and his own personal position by that time, while differing on the on the apotelismatic principle, certainly was different to the church's position on the sanctuary. Um, it, it was a position even in advance of, of Heppenstall's position. You know, he, he felt that we really needed to, to redress the whole sanctuary doctrine issue. But even when he published his pilgrimage, he didn't feel feel it was safe enough to publish that chapter. And it's still only quietly circulating. He was able to come out more openly on the age of the earth issues. And I think his, his comment that we come to terms with the facts slowly, <laughs> um, but they are the facts and we can't deny them, was a, was a journey for him and was a constant source of how to balance the welfare of the church for my own individual understanding. Um, and the church will eventually have to come to terms with those facts too. It, it's a challenge still before the, for us as a community. So I think he illustrates well his own personal dilemmas and the dilemmas that the church confronts as a, as a corporate entity. Um, it sounds the like before us. <laughs> yes, well, there's some lessons to be learned there. It sounds like there is a later uh, Hamill, and there's you know there's a little discomfort for me in thinking about that. Um, in that, I feel like it's just differences of time. You know, it's it's almost it's so aleatory and random. You have a scholar who has had the time to understand something like the age of the earth in mm. 1969, and they understand the facts and they're ready to integrate that uh, constructively into Adventist doctrine, but it's uncomfortable for someone who hasn't had the time to understand those facts. Mm. And it, it, you know, whoever has the power at the moment and wherever they are in their understanding really determines reality and financial security. Um, you've been an administrator as well as a historian. Is there any hope here? <laughs> yeah, a <laughs> good question. But really, Alexander, I think in spite of the dilemmas and the pressures, I think the church is becoming mature enough and, and robust enough intellectually and doctrinally to cope with the diversity. Um, I remember Jim Cox saying to me once that if you've got a hen on a nest and you know that one of the eggs under that nest, is, under the hen is, is bad, <laughs> it's gone, gone off, you can't upset the, the, the hen on the nest just by removing the egg. You've got to 
put another egg in its place and gently keep the hen settled on brooding on the nest. And he said, that's the way it is with the church. You, change happens slowly. You, you can rem remove the, the, the faulty parts of our, <laughs> I mean, a, a, a nest full of eggs is probably not a good metaphor for, for a doctrinal structure. But, <laughs> but we got I've, the point. I've heard, I've heard so many, you know, a, a <laughs> string of beads. So I'm, yes. I'm ready for a nest. <laughs> at, least, <laughs> at least something fertile is happening. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the longer the church goes on and the, the, the fact that the clock keeps ticking um, and we face each new day, that the church will come to terms, we'll find ways of, of discovering the essence of our teaching, the, the essence of those key doctrines which speak to, to large issues rather than the nitpicky of the details of how they're constructed. And, and that's an ongoing task and we've got people these days who can help us do it well. Lawrence Turner, for example, who, who is a, has a brilliant way of, of helping us find our way through those things. Um, Raina Brunsma is doing that and other teachers. Um, so, yeah, I'm hopeful that we can continue to live together <laughs> and become more diverse and, and cope with the, the facts that will continue to, to trickle onto the screen of our future, even as we move forward. Well, thank you for your encouragement. We could stop there, but I do have to ask because you've referenced Glacier View and that had some, your research about Glacier View had some role in you taking on um, this history of uh, 1966 through 1979. Can you talk a little bit about what you're um, thinking about doing with the history around Desmond Ford? Well, um I've, I've been collecting a lot of materials and there is a, a lot more material becoming available about the, that particular major event in Adventist history. Um, but I'm working, first of all, on, on a project on uh, Heppenstall. I'm, I'm working on a biography of Heppenstall, who was Ford's teacher um, and Ford's mentor and was distressed when things broke up in 1979, 1980 and found himself having to pull back from where Ford was, even though he was a, a teacher himself who saw the bigger picture of things. So Heppenstall himself was a little like Hamill, caught in the middle. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm working on, on that story as, as a way of working towards the Glacier View story, which, which is a story that does need to be told. Um, and hopefully it can be told in, in more detail at a later time. Nice. It sounds like you're really working all the angles here. So I appreciate yeah. all the yeah. labor you're putting into that. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about Richard Hamill. Next time we talk, we'll talk about um, Siegfried Horn. And I'm really looking forward to um, exploring his role in this uh, narrative. Thanks, uh, Alexander, for the invitation to join in a conversation this morning. It's uh, really stimulating. Thank you. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive.